Hi everyone, welcome to Morning Matcha. I'm here today with Bonnie Wright, who's an actress, environmentalist, filmmaker, amongst many other things. Hi, Bonnie. Hello. Well, thanks for joining us today. It's so fun to be here in Venice with you and finally actually have a chance to sit down and chat mm-hmm. and kind of meet. Yeah, really? Because we've me here. seen each other at so many different events and like passed each other by, but not ha- really had a chance to even have a real conversation. So this is fun. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, it's strange how you can see so many people and it feels intimate, but it's nice to sit yeah. down and talk. Especially the settings that we see each other in. They're yeah. so special. So I feel like I know you. But, yeah. And that's what's so cool about social media in a way. Yeah, definitely. To have that connectedness is, is really cool. Yeah. Okay. So I want to ask you about so many things that you've been up to and that you do. And I'm so inspired by your work for the environment and sustainability and as a filmmaker and I want to start with just kind of how you got into that world. You grew up in London. Um, tell us a little bit about that. What brought you out here? Mm-hmm. And um, and yeah, just getting into acting in general. Sure, yeah. I mean, it all started for me when I was really young. Um, I was nine years old when I first acted in the Harry Potter films. Um, and I guess at that moment in time, I was so young. I don't think I really knew what I wanted to do and anything that I did want to do that we all dream up when we're younger probably changed from day to day. So acting and the film industry was definitely something that I knew very little about. Um, I guess I always knew that I would sort of end up in a creative sort of field. I come from a family who, who are sort of all very artistic. My brother's a fine artist. My parents are jewelry designers. And, you know, I've always had that that way of being and, and appreciating what's around me in a very, I think, a creative way. Um, but yeah, when I landed the role in the films, it was a, a huge sort of surprise. I was, I think I was just very much like going to the audition for the the fun of being part of the process of auditioning. Like I didn't actually ever really think that I would get the part. So had you been in anything else before? No, never had been in anything. I mean, apart from like a school play, but wow. nothing ever professional and my brother had basically read the first few books. My older brother had read them and, and he, everyone sort of knew in England that they were going to be making them into films. And he suggested that I audition. He was like, you're, you're really remind me of the character. And I sort of didn't know who he was talking about, but very much looked up to him. So I was like, whatever you say, I'll go do it. Um, and yeah, so my parents, my mum contacted the publisher of the book, Bloomsbury in the UK. And they gave her the number to the casting director. And then the casting director said, you know, send some photos of Bonnie and a sent- could she write a sentence of why she'd want to be in the film and who she'd want to play. And Aww. and so we did that. And then I had two auditions and I got the role. So it was, yeah, it was That's crazy. incredible. Yeah. And all of us very much didn't know, you know, that we were about to embark on this 10 year journey that we all, that we all were a part of. You know, I finished when I was 19. So it, it spanned a huge part of my life that very much inferred and inspired what I ended up doing and and the relationships that I had and the kind of work mentality and ethic that I was so inspired by on those sets has very much like set the standard um, for me having sort of moved on from that. How much of your life uh, during those 10 years did you spend on set? It varied from film to film, like according to sort of if the role was, you know, my, my character's role very much grew throughout the process of the film so that ended up being more more time yeah. there uh it could depend it was so random I mean the whole shoot from film to film would be about six to eight months because we'd all be doing our schooling in between so mm-hmm. unlike a you know regular movie that films in three months you know you we were shooting so much less a day mm-hmm. um and it was very interesting going on to other film sets after that realizing that it was actually such a unique um, scenario because there were just so many of us and there was just so much to film and 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 also so much for us to keep up with um, and so I mean if I wasn't filming and there was like a chunk of time that I wasn't filming I would go back to school and mm-hmm. you know, just carry on as 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 it were and I was able to because the filming took place just outside of London like I went home to my home every night and sat yeah. in my bed that I would have been sleeping in no matter what happened so I think that definitely kept a normality to my life, normality to my life. And 
um that's yeah huge. in a weird way that's yeah. really nice yeah. to have that and then I'm sure you realized you fell more and more in love with the idea of filmmaking mm-hmm. right yeah I think it very much came from just quite a sincere sort of curiosity I had as a child I was always really interested in what everything it was doing if I was sat on set you know, with lights pointing at me, I'd kind of be interested in why that was pointing that way or why they were changing like a filter on it or what a button did. And and I was always very interested in all the moving parts of how it came together. And I always just, I guess I just got thirsty to know more about what was beyond my role as an, as an actor. Yeah. Um, and I was just so fortunate that whilst filming, I was able to spend time in a lot of the different departments and and sit with people and almost have a kind of work experience in, in you know, kind of internship almost when I was, you know, had the odd hour I was free or maybe it was, you know, vacation period where I didn't have to be doing schooling so I could, you know, spend my time doing that. And, um, and I started slowly, my school work and subjects began to be very much integrated into the filmmaking process um, and everything I was making within my art sort of based subject all started to become film-based work. And when I was deciding to go to college, it just made sense. Everything pointed in, in the direction of going to study film. So that's what I studied when I went to college and I, I graduated in directing and writing. Where did you go? Yeah, so I went to, in London, we have mm-hmm. University of the Arts London. So all mm-hmm. our art colleges are one university. So oh, that's where that's I went. Cool. So I didn't, didn't go too far, I just stayed <laughs> in London. Yeah. And what sparked... Uh, your activism then I guess for me from I think even before you know getting into a world where I had a a platform and a voice to communicate with people and feel that a really interesting through line of communication I think from an even younger age I was always you know, if we ever had any initiatives within school or, or friends, I would always be very interested in sort of rallying people together and doing like a, a bake sale to raise money for a certain, you know, organization. I always was, I always loved that part of coming together and, and using my time to do that. So I think I've always very respected and responded to the idea that youth have time and not necessarily money to give to organizations, but to make sure that, you know, in that position that you're also in a very powerful position if you yeah. have a lot of time mm-hmm. and you have the ability to use your voice socially through these platforms that we've all become so intelligent at using to just empower young people to realize that that's you know m- sometimes more important than being able to give a percentage of your salary or whatever yeah. you end up being able to do so that for me has been something that I'd really love to connect with knowing that when I was that age kind of in my teens and and like taking it out of school and keeping to continue that through sort of college and your early career how do you sort of keep aligned with a cause or committed to something and I think it's a really important age to like not get lost. not allow your what you align with to get lost with the the sort of fear of having to keep up and keep ahead and get that job and do those things like you can still have those things that you align with you know, and and keep that, it going. That just came intuitively for you, it seems. Yeah, I think, yeah. And that's what's always been so lovely about any time I've ever spent with certain organizations or collaborated people or gone on visits to certain programs and projects is that it's just something I genuinely love to do. And and for me, film and why I love film is storytelling and and, and storytelling is what, you know, activism and what sort of, what working with organizations is, you know, it's giving voices to to people, places or things that don't have Have a voice. So it's the same at the end of the day, it's that like communicating the story. When did you start your production company? So I started that in my last year of college. Um, It was almost like, (laughs) it's funny, it was like a, as one of the like course requirements as one of the modules, you had to, you had to make a website that, you know, that showed your work and you had to learn about how best to sort of portray yourself as a filmmaker going on in that next step of like your career. And I sort of didn't really want to have bonniewright.com. I thought that'd be a bit boring. And I, and I thought in, I would, I just love collaborating with all the filmmakers in my year. 
And I thought, oh, it'd be really cool to have a production company that maybe later down the line, you, it was kind of like a collective of filmmakers. Mm -hmm. So I guess I kind of decided that I would dream up a name and, and the Bonbon Lumiere name comes from Bonbon as, as in like an abbreviation nickname of my name. And then Lumiere meaning light in French. So it was, I guess it really came out of like having to do it for a, 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 you know, some points in my degree, but it ended up being something that I loved. And I guess it's just become a really an umbrella of my work and everything that I do is kind of housed under that name. But at the same time, I very much open to not knowing where it will evolve to. Mm -hmm. I think more and more now I'm getting into directing work that is, I guess, more of a sort of job in the sense that last year was the first year I directed commercials and and things are changing into that world. And a lot of that's actually done, not necessarily like through my company, it's more through a a company that I've started sort of directing through called Pulse Films, um, which is a London-based company and they have an office here just around the corner. Um, And yeah, so that's been a really interesting new realm for me with my directing in the sense that I've been very fortunate that since graduating, I've been able to have the time to create my own films that I've wanted to create and not have to answer to anyone else's kind of desire of production. And Mm -hmm. I've made them purely from like 100% me. But now it's an interesting new step in my career in the sense that I'm more sort of pitching for jobs that need to be done. And and that's a really interesting new world of, of like working with clients and delivering something that they want, yet also, you know, and you're giving your vision. voice too. Yeah. yeah. I think that's super cool and probably really interesting to, there was this one book. Do you know Miranda July? She's this artist, but the whole idea of the book was like, sometimes as an artist, like it's nice to be told what to do and Definitely. it's nice to follow <laughs> yeah. directions. And so here are a set of directions for random different things and tasks mm-hmm. that you can do that might actually spark your creativity because on one hand, it's so nice to create and create, create and have that come out of yeah. you, but it's a nice conditioning. So it might be. Definitely. I think it's it's where for me, as an artistic practice, filmmaking, I love because it's at the end of the day, it's collaborative. Like you can't, I mean, you could make a, you could be your own one man band and yeah. make an entire film from start to finish on your own, but it'd be very difficult and it would be very different from sort of what we understand as like traditional filmmakings. Mm -hmm. So for me, the collaborative process is what keeps me kind of, I keeps me sort of on the ground and keeps me in check in the sense that if I'm working with a cinematographer and I have this crazy idea, they could either sort of pull it back down to earth and give it some like actual physicality of it being possible to shoot Mm -hmm. or the other way around, you know, I could be working with someone who's very, very technical um, you know, you can, you can spar off each other, but then yeah. at the weirdest, the other end of the spectrum, which I definitely thought would never be the case when deciding to go into directing and filmmaking was how much of my time I spend on my own writing mm-hmm. and how much of my time until the production is underway is actually quite a solo thing. Mm-hmm. And that's been a really interesting thing to come to terms with and sit with, because like you're saying, you sometimes do want some someone to tell you what to do yeah. or someone to to say yes or no sometimes mm-hmm. when there is no, there's so much gray area. Mm-hmm. So that's been a really interesting place of self-discipline and, and, and keeping that inspiration alive and keeping those dialogues happening with people rather than it sort of closing in on yourself and, and isolating the process of it because then, I mean, some people do work like that in a very much their own complete bubble, but I know that personally I'm so much more inspired when I'm having dialogues with people, even if it's nothing to do with my work. I'm having a dialogue about their practice and their work or yeah. it can teach you so much like in a much quicker space of time, I think. Do you, does your work have a theme to it? Uh, yeah, I would say. Um, I think it's about often a lot of my work has been in quite open sort of rural natural landscapes and often it's been some event within nature or some new perspective that the character gets to that becomes a sort of quick catalyst to them 
suddenly in their own way unfolding what they maybe already knew. So, for instance, one film of mine is this guy who's walking through this forest in upstate New York and he's it's all led by voiceover like he's walking through this through this forest but he's almost talking to his lover that had just has just passed away mm. and so he walks to the top of you know you slowly you don't really realize how and where he's walking to but at the end of the film he you realize he's actually walking kind of a slow incline and he's suddenly over this huge expansive landscape and he's suddenly above things and that new perspective allows a moment to drop and shift where he realizes how he can and will move on from this sort of grieving process. So mm -hmm. it's that new position within the natural landscape that allows him to realize and have the confidence to, to sort of grieve and move forward. That's so beautiful. Yeah. So I would say that's a, a kind of theme that's naturally developed. Um, so it's about expanding and growing and seeing new perspectives, but then also, mm -hmm. you're, you know, an environmentalist, so you love that role yeah. landscape. Yeah, there. and I think for me, that's what nature has given me, definitely, in terms of a sort of safe place to not need to... I think it's that give and take that you take from nature and that respect for it. I think I know I've taken so much in a hopefully a not a greedy way, but <laughs> I've taken so much and have been so thankful for it that I feel telling its story and showing it on film is a really beautiful thing to do. And also in the more environmental work to, again, give it a voice that it doesn't have and it it's sort of being abused and, and not seen. Um, and then a film, for instance, that I'm writing right now is very much ties in not only the process of expansion within the landscape that has been, that I've looked at in a more sort of poetic way. This is more like, it very much ties in environmental, even though it's a, you know, it's a fictional sort of imagined world, essentially, that I'm, I'm that the film is based That's in. Exciting. It's still very much all tied into where the world could go if we don't look after it. And are these shorts or? No, what? this is a feature length. Yeah. That's yeah. so cool. Is it your first feature length? I've, I've written, this will be the second one I've written. The first one was... I wrote maybe two years ago and it was a really interesting process of writing because it's just so different. I mean, a short film, I feel like is so much more manageable and it's so less about structure and this overarching narrative that has to kind of work through events and take you to some sort of place. Um, so the first one I wrote was definitely a fascinating process, but then I ended up not kind of wanting to tell it anymore, the story. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and so this is the second one. Um, of mine that I feel and hope will become the first feature film yeah wow and mm. how long does it take to write something like that it takes a long time I mean I'm on the first draft now and I've been writing since like October mm -hmm. and I'm I think yesterday I hit page 150 how many pages is uh, it depends I mean they say a page a minute is kind of what you kind of wow. work out so but it's going to be I mean I reckon that the first draft will end up being 200 pages but you'll I'll want to cut it down mm -hmm. I mean unless I mean I'd love to make a two-hour film but <laughs> uh I mean not uh, longer than two-hour films that's yeah not, um but yeah I would ideally I would need to cut it down to like to be a two-hour film like 120 130 pages you're so talented <laughs> and you're also so humble and centered and calm and I love like I just seeing you around at different events I gravitate towards your energy and I'm sure a lot of people must tell you that or feel that way about you and I'm curious like even someone to be able to sit down and write a 150 page feature like film mm -hmm. or whatever it is like what's your your do you have a spiritual practice or I know that you're into wellness so mm -hmm. what are your sorts of rituals or practices that you have in your personal life that really help you? Yeah, I I definitely have found, like I was saying before, through that sort of self-discipline that I've so had to learn. And I think a lot of people do in a, if they have a creative practice or they're freelancers or in any way. And I think there are so many tools that I've, that I'm fortunate to be able to have accessed or had the time to sort of spend doing. One of which is 
practicing Vedic meditation. So I practiced that for like two and a half years. And I think that's massively changed and, and sort of just completely cleansed my nervous system that I think was very much kind of in a very fight or flight um, position really, I think from, which I think so many people's, so many people's are and that kind of that constant, that hustle that people think they need to sort of have with life and towards life in order to get ahead and succeed. Mm -hmm. And I think it's taught me so much patience. And I think inevitably, you know, you finish, you finish college or you finish, for me, finishing this huge 10 years of my life, there's this mm -hmm. idea that, you know, everything has to happen as quickly as it kind of came to me. And I think it's been so interesting and a much longer and slower process than I thought to finally start to make stuff and have a pace that's my pace, not yeah. a pace that I was put into because of kind of situation. And for people who don't know what Vedic meditation mm -hmm. is, um, will you explain it a little bit? Yeah. So Vedic meditation is a meditation that is a repeated mantra for 20 minutes twice a day. Uh, and the mantras is about two to 300 of them. And you're basically given it by your teacher and you sort of keep it to yourself. And um, and it's basically just a Sanskrit sound that you repeat effortlessly and silently in your mind for 20 minutes um do some people do like 12 hours uh you can i'm sure you can do like long sort of retreat style retreats style, often yeah. they say if you're doing over certain many hours a day you need to be sort of more under supervision just because you'll get to kind of places that you might need to kind of speak to someone about yeah um so yeah so it's something that i do the first thing i do when i wake up before i've done anything and and then usually in the afternoon, when I feel that sort of slump of of energy, I'll I'll do, and I'm instantly awake. It's That's definitely amazing. something I can't do before I go to bed because I'm suddenly like yeah. <laughs> want to chat and like do stuff. And yeah, when did you get into it? I got into it when I lived in New York. Um, the f maybe I'd lived been living there like six months and got into it. And how what a lifesaver for yeah. living in New York. And I know I was very, and it was one of those like quick. New York style decisions that I like went to a talk uh, that uh, it was like a conversation that Elena Brower, the yoga teacher had done with Tom Knowles, who's a, mm -hmm. one of the Vedic um, meditation teachers. And, and she was sort of raving about how much it had sort of changed her life. And I was just totally inspired by the conversation and it was the following week and I just moved things around and did it. And, and then I also then sat the course again um, with Jackie Lewis, who has the Broad Place, mm. um, which is a yeah, yeah, I've heard of it. Yeah, and she's I've... wonderful, and and she, the way that she teaches the class is not only just the very, the the clean lineage of of how it's taught, but also a very much like an additional layer of how to really integrate that into a modern life, and mm -hmm. and just being more realistic and reasonable with with our day to day, and and gave a much more sort of visual way of teaching it, which for me knowing that everything I see is in images, it was really useful. So there were just like a few ways that she described sort of places to go or, th or, or ways to sort of see things that just really clicked for me. And that was, I think I sat the course again with her a year after I had first sat it and that definitely elevated the practice. But yeah, so I, going back to your question, I guess that's a huge thing is meditation. And, and then I think... I think there's this idea of, of I think now self-care, the world, words are sort of so Gilly huge Shea, yeah. and like, what does that even mean? And yeah. what does that, what, what's, what's in that, you know, what does that kind of look like? Mm -hmm. And I think for me, and I think for so many people, you know, the self is seen sometimes as a sort of selfish place to take yourself and I think that very much is also a British kind of um, self-deprecating, very quiet, you know, not me first kind of struggle. You know, I think people will often go to the negative and the struggle much easier than they go to a sort of positive celebratory yeah. kind of way of, of being, which, which don't get me wrong. I love to know that that's like the base of my existence because yeah. it gives a kind of dry and, and realistic kind of sarcasm to your life that mm -hmm. allows you to laugh at situations that and not take yourself too mm -hmm. seriously. I mean, 
I think so when you can't laugh yeah. at your own self and your process or your mistakes, then there's kind of no joy at all. Um, but I think that idea of self-care and knowing when to say no to scenarios or situations or or know when not to sort of beat yourself up about something. Mm -hmm. And that's been something it's I constantly learn when I'm writing. You know, I can be hitting a wall with something and and I'm so frustrated that I can't complete the day as I envisioned it, that I would write this many pages and it's going to, you know, be a successful yeah. day. And and you, it's knowing, I find what self-care is, is knowing when to take yourself out of those scenarios that you're just kind of destroying yourself within and you're not going to get anywhere. Mm -hmm. And it'd be better to go and go for a walk or read a book or do something that's going to feed you rather than clearly you're sort of wrung out and you're not, there's nothing coming. There's no output of ideas because mm -hmm. there's nothing there nourished inside yeah. you. So whether or not that's, you know, a nourishing meal or, you know, a bath or a cup of tea or a walk or, or reading someone else's work to inspire you or watch someone else's film or. So I think it's, I think it's not only self-care and practicing it, it's knowing when to practice it and knowing when it's beneficial and when actually it's just a distraction sometimes. Cause I think sometimes I can find myself like, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. Like, you know, I need to get back to yeah. why I'm here and, mm -hmm. and what I want to be adding to the dialogue of the world, not like my dialogue to myself. Yeah. We talk about that a lot with like, that's the whole premise behind the fullest mm -hmm. is wellness and really fueling yourself so you can get back out into the world and exactly. be that vessel for the rest of the world. Yeah. And, and for other just, people, you know, yeah. yeah. And be service to other people's needs and, and sometimes know today is not my day. It's someone else's day. Yeah. And I think that's important. You know, you see a friend and you know, okay, this is not the time to start talking about how great my day was or, you know, some great thing that's happened to you or, or a bad thing that's happened to you. Like, it's knowing that it's their self-care day and, yeah. you know, you need to give them that. And I think that's what I just love always about interactions with people. I mean, I just am fascinated with conversation and dialogue or even interaction without dialogue and conversation. Like, you know, spatially, how much you can read someone's and what they need from just being having there. not even said anything to them. Yeah. And I think that's, you know, to me when writing characters and, that comes, I think, from acting, that sensitivity to to body language and to and to the tonality of your voice. You know, you can tell if someone's about to or they need to burst out crying or mm -hmm. whatever they need to do is is like it's a is something that I constantly like a kind of <laughs> bird love to just observe. <laughs> I think it's so true and really cool. And I love that you brought it up because especially now in the digital age, mm -hmm. we talk a lot about how people, and that's why a lot of, a lot more issues between gender can happen and mm -hmm. the Me Too movement is so great. And it's, but uh, what's happening is that people are behind their phones, behind their laptops, mm -hmm. on their screens, and they're not interacting in person as much. And so they don't understand the cues, the nonverbal yeah. cues. Yeah. It's, I mean, that sort of social inability for people to read situations is upsetting to think that we've been so kind of numbed by our phones that they look the same every time you pick them up. They're not mm -hmm. giving us any expression or emotion. Mm -hmm. um, and instead we project onto them what emotion we want to see. So whether yeah. or not, you know, we're feeling kind of shit and we go on to our texts or emails or Instagram and we'll just see terrible things. We'll hate everything we're seeing because yeah. we're wanting to see that back rather than you can be in a bad day and you see a friend who just lifts you, your, your mood. Mm -hmm. And that's no, that's not, you haven't projected onto them to give you, yeah. they're just being like, they take over. Yeah. Whereas I think these things don't take over in necessarily a way that will surprise you. They just take over in a way that you sort of project onto them. Yeah. And yeah, I think it's sad that that human ability to just be there for someone in a physical space just doesn't exist. And I think, I think that's sad, but I think slowly, I think slowly the authenticity of how people 
portray themselves online is beginning to be more called out, I think. I think because people have suddenly only just realised that news can be fake yeah. and <laughs> things aren't necessarily gospel that are written online, you know, mm -hmm. and this has been the case for years. Forever, I mean, think about yeah. propaganda, think about things that are manipulated to make you feel and think a certain way. And I think people are beginning to then think, oh, wait, maybe this portrayal that they're giving to me online that's making me feel really insecure isn't really real and maybe they're as insecure as I am. And wait a second, mm -hmm. why aren't they telling us that? Why aren't they being authentic and just talking to us, you know, like a human being to another one? So I think that desire for transparency is, is there coming. And I think that's what I very much learned in you know, in my work that I've been doing in a more sort of environmental way is again, transparency in terms of corporations. You know, if you have customers who quite happily have stayed dedicated to your kind of line of food or drink or whatever it is, and they're starting to think more sustainably about how we should be interacting with materials that once produced are going to be on this planet somewhere forever. Wait a second, if they have the money and power because we give, we're giving them our money yeah why should why is that why is it our responsibility and guilt to wonder where we should put this plastic bottle mm -hmm. like we didn't choose for it to be sold to us this way mm -hmm. you know they're choosing how to sell it to us why don't they change how they're selling it to us and not leave us with the task of disposing it or you know I think so I think people are being called out more in the yeah. same way of you know, the Time's Up movement and and that, which has been a, a phenomenal thing that has just surprised and inspired everyone, I think. Mm -hmm. And again, that is just calling people out, you know, it's that transparency. Yeah, I it goes back to the power and how you were saying in terms of like volunteering mm -hmm. and how people our age, we have the power. We just have to know that it is powerful to give your time. Definitely. And again, it's powerful that we choose where we're spending our money and yeah. they're going to make the changes if we just take a little bit of time and mm -hmm. research and, um, and call people out. Mm -hmm. And I saw a post that you made about McDonald's. Oh yeah. 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 What was it? They're, no, they're not going to have plastic. So no, or, unfortunately they are going to have yeah. plastic, um, but they're going to be, they're going to, all their packaging will be made from a hundred percent recycled materials. That's incredible. Yeah. yeah and huge. Yeah. I franchise know. And somewhere, like and I think it's like, they serve like 60 million customers a day or something. And it's like crazy. So yeah. And then another, like a big chain of supermarket in London, in the UK committed that they would be plastic free. Wow. In the next five years, which is huge. I mean, that's the first of its time. I wonder know. how. I mean, they'll basically use new. I mean, that's the new, crazy yeah. thing. I mean, the innovation that we have with materials and design is just phenomenal. And I think that underappreciation and use and celebration of science and is just mm -hmm. so heartbreaking to think that there's the intelligence out there and the ability to do all these things. It just takes like serious vision and commitment for mm -hmm. a big company to say, we're going to make bottles, but they're not going to be from plastic. They're going to be from, you know, a, a, a sustainable plant source or a, you know, or a kind of, you know, I mean, there's plastics made out of um, coconuts and algae and mm -hmm. all these different things. So it's interesting to think of, mcdonald's making a change like that and then still putting like their food in it i know i know <laughs> i it's, mean it's a start yeah and it's so i think also it's great. knowing that that is a it's you know it's a company that has a cross section across a demographic that no other corporation or company can have that kind of you, you know reach and i think it's always really important to respect the idea that a lot of a lot of this issue is down to everyone's lack of understanding and education around it. If if we were educated from a young age that what, you know, what happens to the cycle of our waste, what happens to plastics, what happens to all these unwanted and unused or uneaten foods? Yeah. Like, where does it go? It's, it's just something that's not taught. And I think if you can have it, if you can suddenly have a recycling like 
bin and, and these recycled, you know, if it's said on, I don't know, probably who knows if it will, but if you bought a milkshake from McDonald's and it's said made from 100% recycled materials, you might be drinking that and think, what does that mean? And you might not know what that means. And right there, you've sparked someone's interest and curiosity mm-hmm. who could have lived their entire life not having yet. never recycled something or having never even thought for a second, yeah. when I drink this, where does this go? And to be able to have that connection with someone who would never have known is what is going to change things rather than often half the time, sometimes you feel like you're preaching to the converted mm-hmm. yeah. who already know, we know exactly. this is an issue, what do we do about it? That's great that to keep, you know, telling those people, but I think the dialogue is really... When you go to help, everyone. Yeah. yeah. When you spread the word and you go out in the areas where people have no idea. Yeah. And why would that, you know, why, you yeah. know, if it's not put into our sort of Realm. psychology and also, mm-hmm. you know, cons- you know, the people making the products, they don't want to put it into, you know, our heads that they're creating this waste because, you know, and it's language used around things that's so manipulative in the same way as food, you know, natural. It's like, isn't all food natural? Like when you buy a packet of something and it says natural apple juice, yeah. you're like, what does that even, that doesn't. And we know that. Everything's but- from, somehow is from. A natural form nothing's yeah. made out of you know nothing so I think it's the language <laughs> that is used around it too you know making sure you aren't you know manipulating people to think that that they're making sustainable choices by buying things that aren't you know it's I mean like today Coca-Cola re- will release their new sustainability plan and they've so manipulated people. I love that people. you know all this. You're amazing. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> and they, for so long, have used intelligent language to make us feel like they're doing a really good thing for the environment, saying like, oh, so, you know, a certain percentage of our bottles are made of recycled plastic. 100% of it needs to be made from it. There's so much material on this planet that is never recycled because we can't keep up with it or people are just creating more instead. Mm-hmm. Like, that's not enough. Yeah, And don't use language to make people think that you're doing a good thing. Because people look up to companies that they've, you know, people want to be loyal to companies. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that loyalty shouldn't be disrespected. And it's going back to that empowerment as the customer and that empowerment as a volunteer or anything, knowing that you choose to put your money and spend your money where you want to. Mm-hmm. And it we can shift the fashions of what people are buying if people think that the choices they make will create a change and people haven't for so long naturally because corporation is just growing and growing and growing so inevitably you feel completely disempowered and confused and and half the time I just get totally overwhelmed by the whole thing and then I just panic and have nightmares about like drowning in plastic oh my god (laughs) you know I just think things like there's just so many things made all the time you know yeah and there's there's so much food grown all the time and it never gets eaten and there's you know it's and again it's that ability for people to like to I guess distribute things Properly. evenly and properly yeah. in the same as the wealth all, of this we world we have enough food you know? we just don't distribute it properly yeah. and then we throw it away and then mm-hmm. people are going hungry yeah. and then we're using gmos as a way to say no this is how we're going to feed the population yeah. well no we're just like we're hurting them mm. and yeah i think it is that just lack of knowing that there's enough and there's enough and going back to like innovation yeah. and science, there is enough of that to solve these problems. It's not like we're just not used, you know? Um, yeah. And I think it's, and it goes back to anything in your daily sort of distribution of, I mean, it's balance, isn't it? It's like the distribution of how you focus your time, the distribution of, you know, how much of something you put in your body or whatever you're doing. It's always choices of like, mm, that's probably enough or yeah. maybe someone else needs it or you know that's a really good way of looking at it just I love that distribution mm-hmm. it's in everything yeah I mean your balance your weight I mean you know everything from feeling like too overwhelmed by something or I love that so are you working with the UN no I went to so another organization that I work with is is called Lumos which is JK Rowling who wrote the Harry Potter series it's her organization cool and we 
we sort of had a whole talk and I guess presentation of of what her organization is about and about the cause it's about at the UN. So essentially her organization is about the deinstitutionalization mm-hmm. of institutions, children institutions, so essentially orphanages. The idea that unfortunately it's a very, very unknown fact that 80% of children living in orphanages have a living parent and it's often either you know, obviously naturally it's going to be most likely to do with the poverty, you know, situation that they are in that has forced them to think that it's a better scenario to send their child away. But the more terrifying and traumatic reality is that the industry that is growing in orphanages has become on a level that essentially it's child trafficking. (gasps) Yeah, so a lot of countries basically have real, you know, a lot of people, whether or not they may be used, a lot of people were even sort of drug cartel sort of people before and have realized, hey, wait a minute, each child on average will really, will kind of, uh, will get about six to $8,000 a year in international donations through whatever source, but that's kind of an average of what a child will get a year from wherever, whatever organizations are like kind of helping and looking after them, which is a lucrative amount of money you can be making on a child who probably within their country will cost $60 to stay alive for a year, you know, something. So they essentially will attack certain areas that they know will have very little infrastructure or they'll have not the ability to look after their children and then go and essentially take children and put them into orphanages. Yeah. No way. Yeah. So they go into the homes. Go into the home. Either the they could be like, you know, look, we we have an orphanage. We can if you if you send your child here, they're gonna get an education. Yeah. They're oh gonna my get God. food, they're gonna get drink, they're gonna get like the possibility of meeting international donors that come and they, they sort of project and tell this whole life and you know, you might be a mother sat there with five children, unable to feed them, and you think, What am I doing? I should give my child to them because all I want for my child is a good life. So these children are taken, they're given, in the worst case scenarios, the parents are given fake addresses of where they take them and they get lost in the system. And they're obviously not orphanages that are working within the government system. They're totally separate. And there's no documentation of these children and they just pass through and, you know, can never find their family unless they were of an age that they like remembered the town they were from, but... Are they sexually abused? How are they? Yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, the focus of Lumos, the organization, is is the condition. I mean, there is cases of that, but I would say it's more the physical conditions, conditions they're in are so awful. Like, I, I traveled to Haiti nearly two years ago and, and visited some of the worst that there are in Haiti, and I have honestly never... I've never, in all of anything I've ever been involved in and seen, I've never seen anything as as traumatic and terrible as the as the conditions they were living in. And there's so much um, scientific research been done um, into the development of a child's mind if a child grows up in a family and if a child grows up in an institution, no matter what quality of institution, just looking at the basic development of a brain. And we learn so much naturally from a dynamic of a family, whether that's siblings or parents or, you know, being in a space, even if you're not loved as much as another child, you're in this dynamic that teaches you everything about how to be human. And it's, there's such clear evidence of the, the stunted growth of a child's mind whilst growing up in an institution, because that stimulation is not there. You're not, you're just you know, in a mass of, in a room where there isn't that direct stimulation and that ability. So there's very clear behavioral um, issues that develop. And there are some very key, like obvious things of children that people in that field can pick up on instantly when they meet children. Um, And that was just something to learn when I went to these institutions. And that was very much like a dialogue we were having um, with the kind of leading people in that realm about things that I maybe didn't pick up on that that child seemed, but they mm-hmm. picked up on and, and all these things are not, you know, too difficult with 
with whether or not it's a physical sort of need for physical therapy to sort of allow them to do certain things or whether it's, you know, a, um, sitting with child psychologists. These are all issues that if the child was taken out of this scenario, they could quite easily still become a healthy child. Um, and there's these crazy statistics that it's actually way, it will actually cost the world a lot less if we reunited the children with their families and gave them the support or had them you know, adopted or in foster care. It's actually the infrastructure that's needed in a social care system and to, to look after the families within their environment is, is actually a cheaper, more effective way than the amount of money that's spent on orphanages. Yeah. I've so it's like, too. it's not even... It's like, why not support a family? Then? Yeah, from the ground up. Because all of it comes down to that, you know, unfortunate sort of issue of the poverty of that community. So what is the organization? Is it creating dialogue around it? Or what are things that people can do? To... Yeah, I mean, it's such a complex issue. Because A, it's telling people for so long who would have believed orphanages is a good place to kind of say, actually, if, if, if we, if we're really going to change the system, you've got to be quite black and white about it and be like, actually know that they're not necessarily the best place for a child. So that's huge to mm -hmm. educate people and to tell people something that they have believed to be one way. So a massive part of it is to educate a huge part of it is to get governments and bodies like the UN to, take this as a child trafficking issue and not as a sort of child um, kind of housing and, and education mm -hmm. issue like this to to understand it's that corrupt and to try and shift all this money that is the six to eight thousand dollars a year that these people are like great this is a lucrative business for me shift that donate donation so if we pulled that money instantly that would be terrible for the children because then they would be out on the streets. Cause yeah. that's, so it's slowly shifting that to organizations that are helping to work from the ground up in social care systems. So, you know, that money exists and people want to give and help children, but you know, it's really thinking, wait a second, is that money I've been giving or my family has been given to this orphanage in wherever it is really helping. Is it real? Or is it, you know, do I know the, the quality of what they're living, you know? Mm -hmm. So just really to to do the research, I think, before you give money and to maybe think, is there another organization that I could still be helping children, but in a better way? So it's shifting that funding. Mm -hmm. That's a big thing. I mean, you know, her, Joe Rowling's commitment to this cause and the amount of money that she has been able to put into it has enabled the organization to go to countries such as when I went to Haiti and give things like 10 year commitments to a country, which no organization does. I mean, most, wow. the length of most campaign at its longest is like 12 months. Huh. And if, I mean, hardly ever that long. So within 10 years, I mean, that's in a huge amount of change. That's so that's amazing. just to be able to really commit to something that is a huge issue. Um, is just so cool that she's committed to that and knows that, you know, that's where she wants to spend her kind of money that she's very much yeah. earned all by herself. So that's really yeah. cool. What a special thing to be part of. Too, yeah, definitely. For you. Yeah. I just got back from a showing of Ai Weiwei's mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah I haven't seen it. I haven't seen it yet. It's so good. Yeah, I mean, I really it's like it. really difficult yeah. to watch, yeah. obviously, but it's so good and so important. I want it to be available everywhere. Yeah. Um, and we, I was listening to a woman speak. She's the uh, ambassador to the UN and she's on uh, like the refugee committee basically. Okay, yeah. And she was saying we need to adopt families basically. Mm -hmm. And that's what like they're doing in Canada right now is families are signing up to adopt another family wow, and yeah. there's like more families that have signed up to adopt a family and to sponsor them. Yeah. Yeah. Then there are families coming into oh, wow. the yeah. country. And that as well, it's sad to think that there are people willing to commit to that and give their time. And, and yet where there are 
families out there. There's more families that need yeah. to be sort of adopted than not. And you think, how are they not getting to us? And where are they getting lost, you know? And I think- Distribution. Yeah, it go, oh and like gosh. there are so many, and just so, and, and just, and just even like these children who, you know, they're not going, they're never, their names are never written down. They're never kind of logged into these buildings. And there's just that you lose your identity. You lose that you're just lost in a sort of yeah. no man's land between kind of existing. And I think that's what's so sad about the refugee crisis is that, you know, these, these people are just stuck in between places. They don't mm -hmm. want to go home. They can't, they, you know, and someone in the country isn't letting them in. And it's like, where do you exist? You know? You're and I think it's so, yeah. and you become a refugee. And even though obviously that word needs to be used and spoken about more, when you have dialogues and you hear, you know, firsthand experiences or just a face-to-face -face with a refugee, they don't want to be a refugee. They want to be Bonnie, who is interested in whatever they're interested in because they came from a life yeah. that, you know, and I think there's that, the reality that you, you know, camps and refugee camps that exist, like you're probably more and more most likely to live out your life on that camp than you are to be placed somewhere. Is the average thing. Yeah. Yeah. That's so unbelievable. So it's, it's kind of. You don't want to, you still, you're still you with all the sort of hopes and dreams you had, yet now you're just classed as a refugee. What, you know? It's so crazy. Yeah. Like in Palestine, apparently there's just generations and generations that have been born and lived mm -hmm. out their life. And we'll only know that, yeah. So crazy. Yeah. I love talking to you. <laughs> what can we expect from you moving forward? Uh, Are you yeah. staying in Venice? Yeah, so I love it here. Um, I've lived here like, yeah, a year and a half. Um, so I'll be staying here for as long as it'll have me. <laughs> um, and yeah, I'm just in a massive writing phase right now. So there's not really much coming out. Oh, I have a project of mine that is a film that I made a while ago uh, called Medusa's Ankles. And that's coming out in May. That's going to be shown at an arts like festival program back in the UK. And then after that, I'll, I'll put it online for everyone to watch. Cool. Um, and yeah, I probably, hopefully this year we'll see some more for my own personal work, kind of some more commercial kind of work, maybe some music videos alongside the big feature film writing. Fine. Um, but yeah, today, the rest of my today is waiting to hear from Greenpeace and see what Coca-Cola Coca said. Coca-Cola, <laughs> I love That's it. That's today. <laughs> so That's yeah. That's awesome. Well, thanks for joining yeah, me. It was so me. fun uh, chatting and meeting really yeah. each other and actually having a real conversation yeah it's been lovely hey everyone thanks for tuning into this week's episode if you enjoyed the show please subscribe leave a comment or review and share with your friends i'm always reading our comments and love hearing from you so keep in touch and i'll see you next time <laughs>